From Moses, the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, this is the In Her Boots podcast, a show about women cultivating the sustainable and organic agriculture movement and how she does it. My name is Lisa Kiverest, and I founded and lead the award-winning Moses In Her Boots project, providing training, resources, and support for women farmers. I'm a farmer myself, running in serendipity with my family in Wisconsin, and am the author of Soil Sisters, a toolkit for women farmers. The In Her Boots podcast celebrates the collaborative spirit of us women farmers and all women working to transform our food system and steward our land, sharing ideas and inspiration with each other. Whether you're a woman with a dream of starting your own farm or already have your hands deep in the soil, there's something for you here. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss anything. Today, we welcome Sylvia Burgos Toughness to our In Her Boots podcast as she shares her inspiring story of growing up in the Puerto Rican community in the South Bronx to today's life chapter of being the farmer at Bull Brook Keep. She's a leader in the organic food movement, including producing and co-hosting Deep Roots Radio and serving on the board of Moses. She and her husband, David, raise 100% grass-fed beef in Amory, Wisconsin, and Sylvia has worn many hats before then, including being a television reporter and working in public relations, all skills that partner well with her farm business today. So thank you, Sylvia, for joining us today and sharing your story and your journey to the farm, which didn't start on a farm. No, right. no. It started in the streets of uh, the South Bronx. So I'm, I'm a New York City a, a kid. A typical ag journey, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it took a lot of years and a lot of winding um, along a path, but it ended up making a lot of sense. So I grew up in the Bronx, a kid of the tenements in the 1950s and 60s. It was a place where there were new immigrants and first-generation kids from all over the world. So my elementary school classes had kids from Israel and China and Greece and Poland, Mexico, and a number of Caribbean states. So it was an interesting place. But it started in New York City because that's where my grandmother was. And a lot of why I started the road to farming is, is about my grandmother and my mother both. So my grandmother was, uh, came to the mainland from Puerto Rico as a young teen. She brought with her, uh, and she had been raised on a diversified farm. All right. So she and her siblings brought to uh, the Manhattan her sensibilities of having been growing up there. But of course, I didn't know her when she was a young teen. I learned, however, that she uh, had a, was a very accomplished cook. And so when she arrived in New York City into the tenements of Manhattan, she was actually a cook to many of the people within her building and people in the local surround because that's a way of making money. And so she was always a very humble person, a very quiet person, but an extremely accomplished cook. And it was really from her that I I was given as a gift the sensibilities of what is good food. How much time does it take? How much time does it take not only to cook it, but to acquire the ingredients for the food? So here was a woman who went to work every day, and she worked in downtown Manhattan in the the finer districts as a laundress in a fancy hotel um, where, you know, she she laundered and and ironed the, the clothing for people who had much greater means. She would get on a subway 
to come home to the tenement area of Manhattan. And she would have to climb many flights of stairs to get up to her apartment. Well, in order to make her great food, she then had to go downstairs and travel the uh, neighborhood for the foods. <laughs> All the and, way forager. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was... Um, going to this little store and that little store in order to pick up food the way that it was done back then. So you went to the baker, you went to the vegetable person. And in Manhattan, where she lived in Spanish Harlem, there was also a covered kind of bazaar, a market, a marqueta, it was called La Marqueta, that was had as its roof the above ground subway. So it was the elevated train. So the subways in New York sometimes traveled up in the air at the level of the second story, or they were underground. And at that point, it was two stories up, and the marqueta was, was sheltered by the, by the trains. So this is what you would hear as you went to the marqueta. <laughs> but the marqueta, I called it a bazaar because as in the uh, kind of European tradition and in the tradition of, let's say, Africa or the Middle East, it was many small stalls, each specialized with their own foods. So Nana and I often accompanied her to pick up the eggs, to pick up the avocados. Uh, the chickens would be live and you'd ask for it and they'd kill it. Um, so they were vendors of all kinds. And that was also part of the sensibility. This was fresh fruit that came in from New Jersey. Wow. The Garden State, <laughs> which was right next to Manhattan. She and my grandfather also, despite being lower middle, lower income, they scraped enough, enough money to actually buy into a collective on Staten Island. So this was a place that was, had been a naturopathic commune where people were vegetarian. They, uh, they sunbathed in the nude, in men and women separated solariums, and they exercised. Well... She bought, she and my grandfather bought into this, this organization. And eventually the composition of the organization changed so that it became all Hispanic from all over the world, meat eaters, um, who originally had all lived or summered in canvas tents, but then switched over to then shacks. This is where I spent my summers, every single <laughs> summer of my life. Um, in fact, she and my grandfather started, my grandmother and my grandfather started going there when my mom was only 12 years old. So this was very much part of the fabric of our family. And it was where I was in the countryside. Staten Island at that time was not connected to the rest of New York. And so getting there was a huge adventure of trains and ferries and buses. Um, and we were in the country. It was a Staten what Island. A unique experience. It's like the ultimate organic spot. Yeah. yeah. And, and so Staten Island at, what, at that time was dirt roads. It was um, small plains on grass fields. And it was farms. And it was there that I felt totally at home. It was, it was the, the sound of bees and birds and small plains overhead. It was absolute fresh air. It was taking off your shoes in June and not putting them back on until you had to go to school in September. Wow. Um, and my grandmother kept a garden. And so there was this now complete circle of her, her wonderful dedication of time to ingredients. She grew them in the garden. 
She took the time to shop for them laboriously in the city. And she was a committed and marvelous cook who uh, never really talked about it much. You know, you just sat in the kitchen with her and she'd make food. And it was uh, one of my earliest memories was actually having uh, being sick. I must have been like six years old. And that's, I'm guessing all of this because I can remember my hands were little. And I must have been sick because there were none of my siblings around. And I was just with Nana in her kitchen. So this is what I'm surmising. And in front of me was this, this bowl of soup, bone broth made from scratch. And this lady had taken the time to do that for me because she loved me. And it took so much effort for her to do that. It was healing. Because she knew yeah. it was healing. So being exposed to the country like that, having these values, that really put me on the, on the road to what matters. So when I came out to the upper Midwest as a young TV and radio reporter in the early 70s, it was just the place I wanted to be, on Lake Superior, working in Duluth, and really being able to experience that outdoors on my own. You know, spring forward a couple of decades, I've had my family, I lived in Minneapolis, and I was in public relations. I worked for nonprofits and corporations and universities, but I also had the great luck of working for the Organic Growers and Buyers Association starting in the late 80s. And it was from that start that I began to meet uh, many of the um, organic farming pioneers that then really collaborated to create the Organic Foods Act of 1990. Everything came full circle again for you. Everything comes full circle. And so, you know, fast forward again, my kids are grown. I meet my, my husband. We blend our families. And uh, he had had a far hobby farm in Wisconsin. And he says, well, I think I want to farm again. And I thought, what? <laughs> a farm? We already live in Wisconsin. It seems so far away from things. And uh, we looked around. We wanted to stay in our community because it was, uh, it was his home turf. But also we had a, a faith community, a, a church community that we absolutely loved and didn't want to leave. So my husband, Dave, he put on his networking hat and kind of worked the, 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 the streets and his friendships. And uh, we eventually were able to buy a farm. And, uh, and so when was that? We bought our farm in, in 2009, 2009. And I happened to be at a grazing school when he signed the papers for the farm. And it was like, what a gift. It was like so wonderful. I could barely stand it. And it was within three months that we had cows on the farm. So you've always wanted to do the, the beef side or? I had no idea. Yeah. Really. <laughs> when he said we we're going to, we we're going to live on a farm, I thought, what? Uh, and then I said, well, if we're going to have a farm, it's going to be a working farm because I had already worked with the Organic Growers and Buyers Association and numbers of, of, um, farmers and what and, and processors and saw that it could be done and it could be done well and said, you know, we'll have a working farm. At first I thought we might have a meat goats in order to serve the um, migrant communities in the Twin Cities. But when I found out how much the fencing cost. <laughs> <laughs> Your said, practical side kicked in. No, that's not going to work. Um, and so uh, the story about getting the cows, I'll make it brief. I commuted to the Twin Cities from our community in Avery, Wisconsin for over a decade. And I would always pass by this farm that had these cows on them that I really loved the look of these cows. So 
we found out that we, uh, we, we had our farm now. We had signed the papers. It was late December. And one day on the way home from work, I just pulled into the farmer's yard, knocked on the door. <laughs> and this, this older lady opens the door just to crack because here I am, this person who she doesn't know in my city gear. And she says, yes. And I said, well, you know, if you ever think of selling any of your cows, I'd really like to buy some. She didn't even open the screen door. She goes, well, he's not here right now. And I thought, okay. So I pulled out my business card and I put it around the crack of the screen door. <laughs> she took it. And I thought, okay, well, you know, I'll be back. I'll come back. Well, I'm driving out of the yard. I'm going to go home. And I see the farmer's truck coming over the hill. I turn around. I pull a quick Yui. I walk back into the yard. I walk out of my car and back into the yard. He steps out of his truck. He's got to be 85 and six foot three with a huge smile on his face. I say, hey, I'm interested in your cows. And he has said, his response was, I'm interested in dispersing my herd. Oh, there's a little serendipity for you. But so, you asked. I, I mean, asked. and you felt this intuition that said, I'm going to try this. Now. Yeah. I mean, what could I lose? Um, and so I wrote a check right then and there for half the, the price on six animals. And they were delivered within 10 days. And that's how it started. You're a working farm. The name of the farm is also a real indication of why we're farming. So it's Bullbrook, which is Bullbrook Keep. Bullbrook is actually the name of the brook that crosses the southern part of our farm. Keep has to do with values. And so you might, you know, remember the notion of a castle keep. It's that inner room of a castle that is protected at all costs. It's where you have you, your family go to and you surround them to keep them safe. It's where you put your treasures. And so to us, Bullbrook Keep is really about protecting our values. It's about uh, practicing in a way that lives in thanksgiving to God. It's about being a refuge for our family. Uh, it's about doing farming in a way that restores and, and really, really takes uh, is an expression of our commitment to being good stewards because that's what we believe we have been gifted. Was the land needing a lot of TLC when you got there? Have you been? Well, it had been a, a, a working farm for close to a century, but it had been continuously farmed, so it continuously grazed. Yeah. And so there was work that needed to be done on the restoration uh, of the pastures. But when you do rotational grazing, that's one of the things that you see is a real improvement in the forage and its ability to um, pull up latent seeds. And you actually increase the diversity as well as the, the intensity of the growth. And Dave and I uh, have been amazed at what we've seen. Amazed. The evolution. Yeah. Just in those 10 years. Just in, just nine, in that nine time. <laughs> just in that time. Now, certainly we've been gifted by amazing rain. So it's not because solely of our management practices, because we're new at this. Because you really learned the whole grazing side, right? I mean, you mentioned you were at the class when you bought the farm. So it can be done. It can be done. It can be done. Um, and if you have some good books, and certainly some of the best grazers around the United States have written some really excellent books, uh, and if you have an opportunity to sit in on, on a couple of grazing schools, uh, certainly I did in 2009, but then I went to Missouri for a few days in, in, two th in uh, about five, six years ago uh, to Greg Judy's uh, grazing school, which was phenomenal. 
So you take a look at what you're looking at in the way of what kind of performance can you expect from your cattle? Uh, what is it that you need to be doing in order to promote really healthy grass? Because ultimately, that is what you're farming, is the grass. Because without the grass and without good soil, you have no cattle. Um, and uh, you also always get into the finances yeah. or something like this. Yeah, and, and it, it, you know, our story is also about not only being from the Bronx and ending up in a barn, but doing it at a, as a, at a late stage in life. Because we entered farming at, a, at an age when most people are retiring. <laughs> Good for you, but it can be done again. It, it, it can be done, but you have to take a look at it um, and know that your window is small, that there's no real huge opportunity to recover from financial downfalls. And so we tended to be fairly conservative about the entry. And one of the things that helped us too was attending uh, the year-long land stewardship projects farm beginnings class. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Which is not about technique in the least, but rather about how do you set your goals? How do you look at your finances? Uh, how do you um, set up your plan so that you actually help your family become a stronger family? Um, and as Dave and I now go into uh, the latter years of what we had expected in the way of farming, we're taking a look at it again. You know, is this the time now to bring in one or two other people? Mm -hmm. And that's where we are. We want to have some people come on the land uh, on a part-time basis and work for a percentage of the, cash, of the calf crop. And they'll have an opportunity to build up their, their little herd and they can decide after three to five years to rent our land or to take their animals and move them elsewhere. So we're looking to see how do we transition. But it's an evolving journey for you that you're proactive on is the key. It's evolving. It, it always involves, uh, it's evolving, but it also calls for some tough questions. I mean, when you get to a spot in your life where you're realizing, I think I need to make a change because of being older, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. Well, I was the 85-year-old guy who finally sold his cows, but he had somebody like you approach him. Exactly. Where, where do you sell your meat? Is it direct mostly? Yes, it's all through direct marketing. Um, well, actually, I should say it's like 99% through direct marketing. We, we, do now, we are now carried in a couple of stores. Um, yeah, and that's been a wonderful part of this farming adventure. Uh, with that, my background, you know, 40 years in public relations, thankfully that helps in reaching out to people who might be interested in our beef. And we do sell out every year. The, the demand continues to exceed supply. So part of the mission of our farm is getting people on the farm to visit. And so we have visitors every single month of the year, sometimes in crowds. Uh, which we love because we demonstrate what it is that we do and we operate as a transparent farm. So any customer can come at any time and look at our operation and know that they can trust the beef that they're getting. Yeah. So we love, we love walking the fields with our, with our customers. It's, it's one of the most rewarding parts of being a farmer. I love it. So a piece of advice, what would you give a woman who is, say, at midlife and has this dream, but questions and doubts uh, and dreams. 
Dreams and doubts really should go together. <laughs> um, I think you should dream big, but then you should also uh, take the time to not be afraid if you have fears. Be real um, honest with yourself and say, oh, man, I don't know if I can do X, Y, or Z. And write them down and look at them and face them. Because more than anything else, what you'll probably find is someone else who's been through the same thing. Uh, there are lots of good people out there to talk to who are willing to talk. I, I found, Dave and I found that uh, the, even the conventional, in fact, more often the conventional farmers in our area, because we have mostly conventional farmers in our area, were so willing to help us at any turn. They'd turn up in the middle of the night. If we asked him, if we like, oh, I've got a sick calf or we just had a cow that's calved and I don't have, you know, we're not sure about the colostrum. They showed up. They just showed up to help us. It, they've, I don't know what we would have done without the mentors in our area. They've been great. So, yes, if you're thinking about this, write down what it is that you think you want. And also write down your fears because they're going to have to be faced. They're going to have to be faced. Certainly one of the things that was so very significant for Dave and me was attending farm beginnings and having to come up with a, a farm plan and to talk to one another about, gee, what do you mean by farming, Dave? And he'd look at me, what do you mean by farming, Sylvia? And some of our initial conversations really told us that we had totally different ideas about what we were getting into. And it was really, really important <laughs> to get those things aired. And it helped us come up with a plan. And in fact, one of our plans, part of our contract with one another, um, is that my husband gets to go hunting for up to two months a winter <laughs> in Arizona. Oh, <laughs> nice choice. But you, but that that's important. It's and you it's, can. It, well, we want to have a strong marriage. It goes both ways, right? Right. And so he's helping me farm. And I have to help him be who he is. And so, um, you know, usually he's only out there hunting, you know, five to six weeks. But, hey, he can go for as long as he wants. And the thing that makes it possible is we make sure that I've got the machinery that I can operate to do things successfully. So we started out with a small tractor with no cab. Well, one or two winters of 30 below in a small tractor with no cab lets you know that, you better get a tractor with a cab if you live <laughs> in northern Wisconsin. And so we have, you know, I, I upped it, bought the tractor that has a, a cab on it. We now operate it summer and winter in greater comfort and in greater safety. And that makes all the difference. Excellent. Yeah. Communication, key to making those dreams come to life. Excellent. Thank you, Sylvia. Thanks for listening to our In Her Boots podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kiverest, with the Moses In Her Boots project. This episode's audio engineer was Liam Kiverest of TechSocket.net. The podcast was brought to you by the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, Moses. The mission of Moses is to educate, inspire, and empower farmers to thrive in a sustainable organic system of agriculture. For more information on Moses, in her boots and a bounty of organic resources, check out mosesorganic.org.